Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January the 28th, 2014, and this is episode 1289 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Tuesday, which means, generally speaking, it's a standalone show, it's just me. It's not a listener feedback, not a listener calls, I take a subject, I pick it apart for you. That's exactly what you're going to get today. In fact, today is a continuation of last Tuesday's show on hunting without a gun. Now, this is not going out, running through the woods like a maniac, and bulldogging a white-tailed deer and breaking its neck with your bare hands. No, this is not actually about taking game. This is about learning to hunt and getting around things like land access and time considerations so that you can teach yourself the hunting skills during the time of the year that most people don't think about hunting. That's when no one's doing it. And that gives you access to land that you would normally not have access to hunt because, well, they don't let you take a gun there. They don't let you shoot things there. But you can learn all the skills. This all started when a listener said, hey, I need to learn how to hunt and I have no one to teach me. No mentor, no dad, no brother, no sister, no cousin, no uncle, no nothing. And I want to learn how to do this. And I talked last time about some time considerations and things. We're going to do a brief, brief, I mean very brief review of part one today. If you haven't listened to it, You'll probably want to listen to part one from last week before you listen to part two today. There'll be a link in today's show notes. Again, today's show is episode 1289. Part one was episode 1284. I'll have a link in today's show notes to that. You can just look it up on the site. Whenever you want to look up an episode by number, if you're listening to the show, like, say, way out into the future or something like that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and plug the show number into the uh, search box. Up in the right-hand side. Before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. You know, when I had to let go a silver and gold company uh, about two years ago now, um, the gal running was a good gal. I really liked her, and we worked together for a long time. But she got involved in a multi-level marketing thing where you were basically running to your uncle and asking him to pay four times what a piece of silver was worth. And if you suckered enough people into doing that, you got some free, quote-unquote, free silver. Uh, and she started hitting uh, the customer list with that, which, of course, most of those customers had come from our show. And I started getting some pushback from the audience. I said, man, this is not cool. This is not what we're about. This is not what you were doing when I uh, when I brought you on board. I don't, I don't do this type of thing. Um, so I had to let her go. So then I'm like, I have to have silver and gold for the audience. I have to. And uh, I went out and found JM Bullion. I, I talked to Monix and Atmex, and they basically didn't talk to me. Uh, they put me in this, like some third-level clown in marketing to talk to me about, you know, send us a media kit or whatever. And I'm like, That's, never mind. I don't want you guys. But we're the biggest. I don't care. I, I want somebody I can talk. I want small businesses as my sponsors. I really do. I found JM Bullion a small business with better pricing than Monix and Atmex, uh, where I can talk to the president if there's ever an issue. So check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. All the time uh, I, I talk about this. It's called the Gun Operator Triangle of Efficiency. I don't know if it's a real thing. It's the word I use. I've heard people call it a pyramid. I've heard it, people call it a bunch of different things. I call it a triangle. I think a pyramid is three-dimensional. I think of it as three things. The gun the operator, and the ammunition. The ammunition is not reliable or you don't have any. You have an overpriced club. If you don't have a gun, you can't be an effective gun operator without a gun. Um, 
And then you have to have that training. Now, you can buy the gun and the ammo. The training is much more of an investment, though, because you have to go, you have to participate, you have to be involved, you have to learn, you have to rely on good quality people to teach you, and then you have to continue with ongoing training on your own. If you're not training how to draw, if you're not training how to draw a bead down on, onto a target, how to move, how to react frequently, you're, it doesn't matter even if you took really good training in the past. You need to work with your own training on an ongoing basis. So you need a trainer that won't just give you world-class training. You need a trainer that when you leave, you will leave with the skills necessary so you can continue to train and return for professional training time to time, but have and know what to do to train yourself in the interim. You'll get that from Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Next up, real quick, our discount vendor of the day for the member support brigade, Victory Seed Company, 10% off all orders. On that note, consider joining the member support brigade. You get a discount from Victory Seed Company. You get a discount from J.M. Bullion. You get a discount from about 40 different people. Um, it's about 10 cents, or 10 cents, I wish I could do it for that cheap. It's about 20 cents an episode, folks, to support the show. And you get all these great discounts. You get hundreds of dollars worth of free ebooks. You get some content that's available nowhere else. Check it out today. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Again, when you get done with the show, if you think that's worth 20 cents, consider joining. And uh, you will probably get your money back several times over per year if you're buying stuff from tactical to practical, from guns to gardens. We have the discounts for you. I keep working on getting you guys more of them all the time. Um, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and do our history segment of today. The episode is 1289, so the year is 1289. How about this one? Uh, the clergy go on strike. An entire Tuscany town is excommunicated. So the Pope just excommunicates a town, right? Uh, and the clergy are directed to go on strike. It's complicated, but essentially this little town joins the fight on the side of the emperor in the city of Florence, and fights out on the side of the pope and wins. The little town has been imposing attacks on the clergy for some reasonable things, but the local bishop felt the town was trying to horn in on his territory, so he calls a strike and the clergy strip the altars. Even funerals and baptisms are refused. The town then hires priests from out of town, essentially strike breakers. The fight will go on until 1292 when both sides will settle for arbitration, which will go in favor of the town. The clergy will refuse to acknowledge this until 1293. No hard feelings, eh? And Alex's take on this is the Italians have been divided over family loyalties, financial loyalties, and religious loyalties for years, often leading to outright, outright war between the factions. These disputes seem like, non, like local issues, but they have far-reaching implications. As Jewish influence in banking wanes, the primary people to take on the reins of finance will be the Italians. This is why disputes in Italy are important to note. But it has been so complex that I've been avoided mentioning most of it. Um, I think what's interesting is that the service of a priest was so valued by the people of these towns and the functionalities of a church that when the priest just said, I'm not doing church, they went and got other priests. And that they were able to get them. And that the, you, again, what you see here is the intertwining of government and religion. Uh, both from a regulatory standpoint, but from a financial standpoint as well. And it's another example of why our founders had the wisdom to say, church here, state here, big wide chasm between the two. You guys do your thing, uninterfered with by us, and we'll do our thing, and you guys get to vote. And that should be pretty much it. With That, that line is great a lot. 
um, in, in modern times, but that's the way it's supposed to be. And this is another example of why. That wraps up the uh, housekeeping that's typical. I've got some other things for you guys that I want you to listen to. Even if you're one of the guys who usually hits the, uh, you know, 30 second advance or 15 second advance until you get past the, uh, the housekeeping. I don't, I don't mind me. It doesn't upset me or whatever. Um, and I know some people do that, but there are times where I have things that are not in the subject that are important, uh, or cool things that you may want to know about. Number one, I want to remind you guys, we now have a TSP survival wiki. You can find that at tspwiki.com, tspwiki.com. It is like a Wikipedia for all things survival podcast and modern survival and homesteading and permaculture, all in one place, devoid of the minutia and frankly, the politics of wikipedia.org. And it is a incredibly fast-growing resource for people that are new to prepping, new to homesteading, and new to permaculture. So check it out, tspwiki.com. Remember, anybody, anybody can contribute to a wiki. If you're like, they should have this little piece of information added onto that, or why don't they have a page about this, or why doesn't it have any information about that, you, you dear listener to the show, may become a contributor simply by registering, signing up, and contributing. Just understand that when you put stuff in a wiki, it's edited mercilessly by other people doing the same things. That's what makes it cool. That's what makes it grow. Many hands make for light work. So don't be offended if somebody changes or adds to or appends or fixes a spelling thing or something like that because it's just the way it is. It's not like blogging. Everybody's working together all the time. And if you're like, I'd love to do this, but I don't flip and know how to edit a wiki, guess what? We have a training center, videos that show you how to do all the things that you'll want to do. It's really easy. You can learn in maybe 20 or 30 minutes most of what you'll ever need for your entire life for contributing to a wiki. And you can help be part of this awesome, monumentous project. The next thing I have for you, I released something today that is blowing the minds of gun haters everywhere. They're, they're tearing their hair out and sending me hate mail, and it gives me happiness and glee. It's an article that came out on Brink of Freedom with an accompanying video slideshow called, What if we apply gun control logic to stairways? If it could save even one life, we're told by the gun grabbers, then we should act. Well, I'll show you how if we got rid of stairs, we could save 13,000 lives the next 10 years. I am serious. The numbers in the presentation are real. The numbers in the article are real. Get on over to brinkoffreedom.net. You can check it out there. It's awesome. I'll have a link in today's show notes. Share the video. Share it on Facebook. Share Brink of Freedom, though, guys. There's a reason I put this on Joe's side instead of mine. He's my intern. I'm trying to help him get some traction. It'd be really nice if you guys, when you share the article with people, could send the link to Brink of Freedom, not straight to YouTube. Uh, that'll help Joe to kind of gain some traction, get some notoriety. I really am committed to helping uh, him as my intern build his own success while he's here. Um, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, the main topic of today's show. Now, last time uh, I covered this with you guys, I covered some things. I'm just going like, to give you the list right now with not any details. The primary hurdles to entry, including land access, time, and knowledge. Uh, hunting with a camera and why it's not everything it's cracked up to be, but it's cool and why you should do it. Keeping a game log. 
understanding game patterns. And then we went into the patterning of game under the most popular and widely dispersed big game animal in North America, the white-tailed deer. I did that because there are more white-tailed deer available for hunting throughout the country than any other big game animal. It's the most popular, and it's the one I have the most experience with. Then I got into reading the wind, rubs, runs, scrapes, droppings, and tracks, feeding patterns, bedding, seasonal effects, the rut, which is breeding periods, peak movement times, and pattern disruption. I'm assuming you've listened to part one. That you have all of that as a background. Even if you don't remember all of it, you, you kind of at least have that behind you with an understanding of where we're going forward. A big reason I even do the review, though, is I'm going to start out today with hunting squirrels. And I've done a whole episode on this, so I'll only go so deep into this. But if you get the idea from that, that what I'm actually suggesting is that you go find a piece of land that you can get access to and start patterning squirrels on it and taking pictures of squirrels and simulated hunting, kind of, sort of, but not really, okay? Um, I think you'd be much better to learn to do this with deer. But the squirrels are there too, so you might as well watch their patterns and see their movements as well. And everything in the forest is holistic anyway. Everything's interacting with each other. Trust me, if you see a season with a large growth in the population of predator birds and you're in an area with squirrel and rough grouse, you probably have a heavy population of squirrel and rough grouse that year. And when you see the predatory birds go down in their apparent population around you like goshawks, uh, you're going to see less grouse and less squirrels. They run in cycles together. And deer feed heavily on mass like acorns. They specifically prefer acorns from white oaks that are less tannic and sweeter than they do red oak acorns, which are highly tannic. So as you see mast change in seasonal fluctuations, you'll see that affect deer and squirrels and turkeys equally. So the patterns all intermingle. Um, and the other thing, though, is squirrels have patterns that you can follow and find. So the main reason I put something like very familiar to people considered very, a very easy game animal to bag, uh, considered to be in high population, not to be considered that smart, something that doesn't read the wind, it's not as complex as hunting deer, especially if you're really hunting deer, not sitting at a blind that's really a miniature house with a heater and earbuds in and reading a book, waiting for a feeder to go off, you're actually hunting deer. It can be quite complicated, very challenging. Squirrels, on the other hand, can seem very unchallenging. Well, there's a couple reasons for that that give them a rap of being an easier or dumber creature than they really are. Number one, there's just a lot of them. There's just a lot of them. They're rats with big fluffy tails that climb trees. Um, they actually have pretty small litters, though, usually two squirrels to a litter, but, a, but a, a female squirrel will breed multiple times and do multiple litters a season. So they do breed quite readily, and they do reproduce in large numbers because they're a prey animal, and prey animals must breed in large numbers, or they are all preyed upon, and they go away forever. So squirrels have a very high population density in general. The other thing is they, they, they like to travel around in trees, which if you're a human being actually makes them more vulnerable to you if you have a firearm. But if you were a, a, a hawk... It's much harder to get that squirrel like tumbling through the tree than it is that rat or that mouse or that pack rat or whatever that's out in the middle of an open field. Uh, it's also the case that, you know, if a cat wants to attack something, a wild cat like a bobcat or a lynx, it's much easier for them generally to capture something like a rabbit than a squirrel high up in a tree. So the tree 
It's an advantage for the squirrel against its you know, main natural predators. And let's face it, if you didn't have a bow with an arrow flying out of it or a gun with a bullet flying out of it or a shotgun with a big spray of pellets flying out of it, it'd be pretty damn good protection against you too. So the gun has leveled this playing field for us with the squirrel. And since they're up in trees, and you can see, remember what I talked about last week. So here's where you start to see correlations from predator and prey. All right. One of the things I said last last week was if you're out hunting deer and you're set up somewhere on a stand waiting for deer to come and you have the sky behind you, you're silhouetted in the sky, you are wrong. Because every movement is easily detectable because what we call it when a guy goes up a big tree stand, he goes way up in a tree and he thinks he's hiding, right? But he's like on a ridge where the skyline's behind him, he's not blocked by the top of the ridge. Is We call that a lollipop on the stick. Because every movement's easy to detect now for the deer. Well, now the squirrel's in the tree. He's probably silhouetted. So his movements are easy to detect. So once you find him, you can shoot him. So the squirrel actually is a much smarter animal than, let's say, success numbers would lead you to believe. It's also the case. Squirrels, the dumb ones go first, right? There's the dumb young squirrels that see a person coming through the woods, lollygagging along with their shotgun, and instead of hiding or timbering out, timbering out's when they just like take off through the trees or what have you. They start screaming and yelling and shaking their limbs and being angry at you, and out of the tree he comes. Well, in the beginning of a squirrel season, in a place where they're hunted heavily anyway, those ones are dead in like a week or two, and it gets much more challenging. But that's not really what I'm, I'm coming at this for either. I want you to be able to realize that even this little animal has observable, patternable behavior that can lead you to the ability to take more of them as a hunter. And that if you start learning to read those subtle patterns and le learn to read something like whitetail patterns, you start to understand the entire woodland better. And then it's easier to read wild hog or turkey or duck or anything. Right? So there's only a few things that squirrels really concern themselves with. You know, they don't have MTV. I guess we don't anymore either. MTV is now reality shows. But they don't have music and iPods and MP3s. They don't listen to podcasts. They don't gamble. They don't play a lot of games. They may play around a little bit, but usually that's actually breeding behavior you're observing. Um, you know, they don't watch Desperate Housewives or the Kardashians. Uh, they're not worried about who's president. They could care less who the next Ask Clown and Chief is. They don't write their congressman. They have a very basal need. And it's pretty much they eat, they breed, they, 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 uh, they raise their young, um, and they fight for the right in dominance with other squirrels as populations rise for the food, the nesting, and the breeding. And they try to not be eaten by other things. So they're worried about predators, food, and making babies. That's it. That's it. And that makes it very easy to start asking yourselves, where will I find these little guys? So let me cover everything except one and show you how important it is. Let's say you wanted to manage land for squirrels. It actually is done. Uh, I'm part of a forum called the Squirrel Dog Forum where I post occasionally. There's a whole board that's dedicated to nothing but squirrel land management techniques. And one of the things you might do to improve squirrel management on your land is to provide more housing. Squirrels like to make two kinds of nests I'll get into later, but 
uh, they like hollow trees and logs, and there's only so many of those. And you need mature hardwoods for that. So one thing a lot of people will do is build a box, a box or another nest type that mimics the size of the cavity they prefer, and you put those up in trees and squirrels nest in them. Okay, And so you build these boxes, but let's say in our squirrel nirvana, we don't have any trees yet, so we're going to do the best we can. So out in the middle of this field, and it's a 1,000 yards in any direction from the piece we own before you get to trees and brush and shrubs. It's wide open. You put up about 50 poles, and on top of every pole, you put a box for squirrels to, to nest in. Okay, And they're the perfect box, and they're easy to get up the poles. It's not got a squirrel blocker for like they have for bird feeders. This is perfect. Right? And then you set out a bunch of food, and you put out hickory, nuts, and pecans, peanuts, black oil sunflower, which black oil sunflower to squirrels like crack. You put out all the food you could want. And that's food. It's a place to nest and breed and sleep. And you say, okay, they need water, because I didn't mention water, but we know they need water. So you put out water for squirrels. Now, there's nothing missing. They have all the food they want. They can sleep, chill out. They don't have to search for anything. You're going to have almost no squirrels. If you see one, it'll be very, very rare, and it won't stick around. Why? Because the, the driving force before even eating, before sleeping, before breeding, is to not be consumed by a hawk or a cat or a dog or a snake or any of the many things that, just like me, think squirrel is delicious. So by having that out in the open and not having cover, That squirrel knows that if he's going to go a thousand yards across and a thousand yards back, about halfway through his trip, he might hear the sound of, Meow! and you know, our falcon or Chris Starr's falcon knocks the hell out of him and kills him and we're grilling him over a fire and feeding the, the hawk his head and brains and lungs. So he, he doesn't want to go out in the open. And that's how critical even one of those main components is that tells us straight away when we're looking for squirrels, we're looking for cover. If we don't have cover, we're not, we might have ground squirrels because they create their own cover through tunnels and holes and stuff to the dismay of many ranchers who've had livestock break ankles and, and, and legs in those holes. They create their own cover. Tree squirrels don't do that. They need a natural source of cover. So we need dense woodlands and we need woodlands to provide a good nesting environment and a good food environment. So you might say to yourself, Jack, why do I see squirrels bouncing all over residential neighborhoods where there's not like a forest of trees? Well, there's probably some trees, and they're utilizing the homes, the sheds, and everything else as their cover. So they have cover in a, in a dense suburb. So they'll take a stand-in, but that has to be there, and then they're making a living on bird feeders. If there's not enough trees and mast and fruits and things like that, they're making a, listing on, a, a living on the bird feeders. So they've adapted to that, and they're also not hunted by humans. And let's face it, there's less predators in most suburban neighborhoods than there is out in the forest, so they have a lower predator impact, so they become acclimated to that, and that squirrel in the park that'll take a peanut out of your hand is nothing like the squirrel down the road in the wildlife refuge who is afraid that it'll be eaten, and they act differently. So the behavior changes with security and perceived security by the animal. So if this, you just take a little thing like a, a furry rat with a big fluffy tail that climbs around a tree, and it seems pretty non-complex, but it's actually quite complex. So let's look at some things. So one of the things we need to do is make sure they have something to eat. If they don't have something to eat, they're not going to be there. If you starve, you're dead. And squirrels want to stay alive as much by eating as not by being eaten. So they need to eat. Well, what do squirrels eat? They eat acorns. Okay. What do they eat in March? 
There's some places you can hunt squirrels in March, by the way. Some states have like just a very short period of time when they're in their breeding cycles that squirrels are off-season, and the rest of the year they're on-season. Some states, like Pennsylvania, have a very tight season, about six weeks, maybe it's eight weeks now, where you can hunt them, and it's only that time. Some states have almost no limits on squirrels. Some have you know, fairly strict limits on how many you can keep per day. So that all varies, but my point is that squirrel hunting in the spring is not out of the question in some areas. So you might want to know what they'll eat. Well, as the mast wears out, all the nuts that they've hidden, some rot, some sprout, they don't remember where every nut is. That's part of how they help propagate the forest. Um, weevils have gotten into their nuts. They've eaten their nuts. And they're kind of out of that winter store, and they're coming into spring. They'll actually eat a lot of vegetation. They'll eat little buds off of trees and things like that. So they're not going to move a lot in that period of time. So if you can find what holds them there in the fall and the winter, you're probably going to find that there's enough vegetation to hold them there in the spring and the summer. But there are things that will attract them just as much as, you know, a hickory dropping nuts, such as a mulberry tree. If you have a stand of woods and there are mulberry in there, when those mulberries start to fruit, squirrels go ape over them. They'll eat blueberries. They'll eat fruits. Um, people that have apple trees and peach trees know they'll, they'll take apples and peaches. So, uh, persimmon, wild persimmon, they're not big. The persimmon won't help you much because the persimmon sits on a tree till it blets and loses its stringency. And the squirrels really won't jack with it till then, and by then there's plenty of nuts and things around anyway. But uh, pawpaw, if you live in a place where pawpaws are native, they'll eat those. They're happy to eat those. They'll eat the seeds inside of those, actually. Uh, Kentucky coffee tree is is kind of like a, a leguminous tree. It has a, a beanish nut type thing. They'll eat that. Those usually put on mast earlier than the nut trees do, and they're available earlier. So that's something to be aware of. Just understand there are different foods that squirrels live on throughout the year. They don't always eat nuts. We just associate them with that. They're an omnivore, but they are definitely an herbaceous omnivore. They don't eat meat, to my knowledge. The closest thing would be that they nurse on milk from their mothers. They nest, they need nesting. And there's two main types of nests, and one you can clearly see, and the other one you can clearly ascertain is probably there. If you have large, mature hardwoods that have limbs on them way up in the canopy where the limb is dead, but there's still a protrusion, there's probably hollow parts in that tree. And if you have enough of those in a stand that you're, you're, you're scouting, there's probably enough of those cavities to provide for some of the nesting needs. The next one is, and most people know what this is, but a lot of folks don't, so uh, I'll explain it. You'll be walking through the woods. Especially this time of year is a great time to go find these things, just to find the areas they're using. And you look up in the trees, and there's this giant clump of dead leaves. It looks like a big ball. That's a squirrel nest. Now, not every chunk of whatever you see in the trees is a squirrel nest, but once you see one, you kind of know what it is. They make those mainly, mainly because they don't have enough cavities to nest in. They would prefer a cavity over that. Now, fox squirrels are actually more inclined uh, to make a home of a, a cavity nest, and gray squirrels are more inclined to build a, a, a leaf nest. But both would really prefer a cavity. The leaf nest is made because there's not enough space. Part of that is understanding the squirrel's reproductive cycle. It is amazing how this stupid little animal actually teaches you so much about pattern, tracking, and understanding game. That's why I included it 
uh, with something that we acknowledge as being complex like white-tailed deer. So you would think so a squirrel makes a nest, has its babies, it's good. So you only need so many nests in an area, you're going to only have so many squirrels, especially in reproductive cycles per acre of woodland and things like that. But it, it, you actually need about three to four times the number of nesting sites as the total number of squirrels that would be reproducing. Because squirrels quickly develop a problem with fleas. And they can't run down to PetSmart and get a flea dip. They have to do something about it, and they can only do so much. So what a mother will generally do, she'll have her nest, and she'll put her babies in it, and she'll start nursing them. And they'll get to a point where the fleas become a problem. Where you know, the, This is at the point where the babies are just getting some hair on them. Um, and mom has been nursing them. They're probably getting close to eye-opening stage, or maybe they're already there. But they're still very little and very helpless. And they don't really look like an adult squirrel yet. They look like a fuzzy mouse. And by about that time, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, there'll be some problem with fleas and other pests in the nest. The whole time she's been taking care of them, running out, feeding herself, nursing them, looking after them, chasing away bad things by chattering and screaming and yelling and being a good mom squirrel, she's also probably been seeing to the building of another nest. Or if there's a cavity that's an old nest, she's cleaned it out and lined it with new stuff. And about the time where she feels like, I can't deal with the fleas in this place anymore, instead of cleaning it up, she moves out. And you'll see sometimes in the spring, especially, mom squirrel running through the trees into a new nest with a little thing in her mouth, and that little thing's baby squirrel. So she'll move the babies. She'll do that two to four times per breeding cycle, and she may breed three times in a single season. So she probably won't reuse any of those nests in that single season, and the leaf nest will probably never be reused. It'll probably go into the next cycle of the season. It may be used to hide in by the random squirrel here and there. A uh, little vagrant vagabond squirrel might use it. It's cold one night. But in general, that nest will probably be uh, just left to decompose and a new leaf nest built in the next season. But the cavities will often be reused. Interesting, isn't it? So we have to really, like, if you ever wanted to actually manage land for squirrels, you got to put a lot of thought into that. And most people wouldn't. And it starts to really open your eyes to understanding patterning. Um, when it comes to nesting and food, though, there's a lot of sign. If you see a lot of these big clumps of, of leaves around, there may not be any squirrels there now, but that area is or has been used heavily. So that, the, the nest is the easiest way to know this is squirrel territory. The other thing is if you start finding things like hickories and oaks, and if you find nuts on the ground, if they've been cut in hickory nuts, you find the shells that have been cut into So if you did find a hickory, you know, a nice pig nut or a shag bark or something like that, and you find a bunch of nuts under it, and none of them are cut, they're just all whole laying on the ground, and maybe some weevil activity and things like that, it tells you one of two things. Either it's the case that there's so much food and so much mass dropping that year that the squirrels prefer the big, giant, fat, white acorn that's easier to get into over the hickory, or there's not many squirrels around. It's one or the other. Either they have a, a, a food source that's highly preferable and you need to find it, or the population is very, very low for those nuts to be laying there uncut. You can also, a lot of times when they're cutting, 
whether it's acorns or hickories, if you're walking through the woods, we'll talk about still hunting and stop, stop, spot and stock and stand hunting here in just a second. But if you're quiet and you listen, especially once the breeze is calm, you can actually hear from quite a ways away squirrels cutting nuts. It's kind of a distinctive sound. And that starts to lead you to the areas they are. This is where you're starting to actually become a predator. You're starting to actually understand your prey. You know where they breed. You know what they eat. You know where they are at different times of the year. You know their motivations. You know how they keep alive. And you hear them, even when you can't see them. The other thing you can hear, especially in the fall, when they're moving through leaves and rustling leaves, a squirrel makes a different sound than a deer walking through the leaves. It makes a different sound than a grouse or a turkey. I'm not going to do sound effects this week, but it's, it's distinctive. If you've ever heard it, you know what I'm talking about. So now you're, you're tuning in the senses of sight. Yeah, for the dumb one that's up in the tree bouncing around. But the, the, the sense of hearing on that animal. You're not probably going to smell a squirrel or feel it, taste it until you kill it and eat it. But you can hear it. You can add that to just visual cues. So, so think about that as we go through and really think about how that all relates back to something like hunting deer and how the deer has all the glory of being this amazing game animal and the squirrel because it's in high population and the young dumb ones are easy to kill and frankly you're allowed to kill a lot of them and you think about it this way in a state where you're allowed to kill a lot of deer and there's a high population deer aren't hard to kill either. And because you're allowed to kill a lot of deer, a lot of times people go out the first day and shoot one or two of them because they'll take a couple does or a small buck because they don't have to hold back that deer tag for that bigger buck. Moving to a state where there's a little less deer, even if there were dumb ones around you could have shot, you don't shoot them because you're holding out for that bigger, more mature animal. So the, the, the squirrel's numbers get skewed that way. It's actually a pretty clever little game animal. And if you've ever dealt with them when you're out hunting and you get one up a tree and it doesn't timber out on you and it goes flat against that tree and goes around the backside and you're trying to insulate and trying to find and see where that sucker is and he's just kind of staying out of your sight and they'll get right up on a big fat limb where they know you can't see from underneath and they'll lay flat on that limb and they'll wait you out. They'll wait till you leave. If there's a hole in that tree, they go in that hole. Right, it's a, it's it, they're they're far more um, good at staying alive than they're given credit for. There's some things you can do, like one of the things you do is if you think he's on the back side of the tree, you stand on the side of the tree you want to shoot him from, and you throw your hat on the other side of the tree. A lot of times that'll you'll see him sneak around, backing off the tree, especially up a ridge. Sometimes you can see you look you see little ears, and you realize that's where he's over that log. And if you can back off far enough, you see just the top of that head. And you can nick the top of that head and drop him out of there with a .22. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it, but it's not like he just sits there and lets you shoot him, which I think people that haven't hunt wild squirrels, especially after the dumb ones have been knocked out of the trees in the first week, don't really, and there's far less squirrel hunters than there used to be. So there's a lot less pressure. So these animals are a lot more prone to easily being taken. But again, I'll tell you what, you start hunting them anywhere. They, they learn pretty quick, and the dumb ones are done pretty quick, but... I will say this about dumb squirrels. They taste just as good as smart ones. So don't be afraid to take the dumb ones too. It's part of the process. Um, let's move on now since we've kind of got a patterning understanding of squirrels nesting, breeding, feeding, and predator response habitats and how that would relate to something that is absolutely more complex with white-tailed deer, with the rut and all the things and rubs and sign and droppings that we talked about last week. Let's move on to hunting tactics. 
And, and then I'm not going to do a lot of drawing analogies back to deer and squirrels. You think of how that applies to you. Um, the number one way that people hunt, especially west of the Mississippi River, is something called spot and stock. It's done far less in the east, and I'll explain why as I explain what it is. Spot and stock is exactly what it sounds like. You're going out, you're looking for any type of animal. And what you're doing is you're looking for areas where you have decent visibility and hopefully enough visibility that you're far enough away that the animal doesn't feel threatened by your presence when you spot them. So if you're out on the plains in Wyoming looking for antelope, you've got a good pair of binoculars or a spotting scope, and you're out like 2,000 yards away from a, a, a herd of antelope, and you're looking at them through the glass, they're probably pretty at ease. They're, they don't really care that you're there. You, you don't really threaten them. They might be aware of your presence and paying attention, but that gives you time to look. Is there a good buck in there? Or if you're out on a coal hunt, is there a doe or what have you? And this could be elk. It could be moose. It could be bear, It could be anything. Right? It could even just be white-tailed deer, though you'll see a lot less of them in the, those environments, more likely maybe mule deer. And once you've determined this is a group I think there's an animal and I want to take, you begin to stalk. And because you know where the animals are, you know where they're moving, you generally don't stalk straight at them, even if you have an area of concealment. You're trying to figure out their movement is going to the left by this angle, so I'm going to cut them off at the pass, so to speak, and I'm going to try to do this in a way where I don't tip my hand to them by sight, by sound, or by scent that I'm intercepting them. And I'm going to try to set up basically an ambush point where I can get close enough to take a shot. That's based on my skill and my weapon. I can shoot further with a bow or with a rifle than a bow, obviously, but I can also shoot further with a with a 3006 than a 3030. And I might be able to shoot an animal at 400 yards, and you might not only be able to do it successfully and safely with confidence out of 250, and somebody else may be able to do it out of 600. So. And on one day, I might be able to make a 400-yard shot stone cold easy on, on a deer or an elk or what have you. And on another day, if I have, like, I don't know, 47-mile-an-hour winds, that shot becomes far more complex. And I might be far less likely to take that shot in that environment, and, and, and then I would bring my own limits in. That's what Spot and Stock's about. Now, we can do this with deer and squirrels. With squirrels, it's often, if you have areas you can see enough up into the tree line, and there's paths and trails in the woods where you can be relatively quiet because you're not walking through knee-deep you know, leaf litter, you walk along, you listen, you look, you walk along, you listen, you look, eventually you see a tail flicker, but you're too far away, so you make a stalk. Same thing with deer. You could be in a similar situation, um, but you're getting closer to still hunting. As soon as you move into these more densely forested areas. Still hunting. Still hunting is almost a combination of spot and stalk and stand or ambush hunting. Still hunting is moving very slowly. Creeping through the woods. So you might be doing spotting stalk for a while. You don't really see anything. You get into an area that you know has a higher population. You're getting off the trail now. You're into the woods but you don't want to just sit there and wait. You want to try to make some things happen. The still hunter's friend is medium to low power binoculars. Four to six power. And you're looking through binoculars at distances that you normally wouldn't think you'd look for binoculars at. 
because you're looking at 40 yards in dense cover and you swear to God there's nothing there and you put the binoculars up and you see just the outline of the eye of the deer or just the one tip of an antler. And by then, buddy, he knows you're there. But maybe you still have a chance. Still hunting is moving so slow that somebody watching you thinks, what's wrong with that guy? Is he lost? Is he hurt? Has he gone crazy? You know, he's moving two or three feet and he's not moving for another minute. And then he's moving two or three or four feet and not moving. And there might be times where you look around, you've analyzed an area and you move a little bit faster and you get to another spot and you slow that back down. It's all about intuition, but it's not spot and stock because spot and stock is far more of we're moving a lot and we're using long range visibility. Still hunting, we're moving slowly, we're taking things in. We're looking for sounds and smells and, and, and visual cues. We're, tr we're tracking, we're looking at sign. We're looking for, like I talked about last week, here's a deer run, and there's a log across it, and there's a fresh nick in the log. Well, that deer, when it went by with its, with its, with its hoof, it scratched out that nick. And then we're looking, oh, there's droppings, and those are fresh, that's warm. I may actually start following that trail a little bit or saying to myself, hmm, let me hook ass around the backside and, and come back in and still hunt from a different angle because that animal's probably bedding over there now. Still hunting's often done that way too. You believe you know where the animal is, but you don't have the visual confirmation of spot and stock. So you don't know really where it is. You know an area. So you know an area always holds deer in the afternoon. Uh, that they go there to bed down in the middle of the day when it's a little bit too warm for their comfort. And they feel a little bit too much pressure from hunters. So you might go in there. You probably are going to end up kicking the deer out to somebody else. But if you're good at what you do, eventually you can be a pretty good still hunter. And still hunting has this place that's kind of in between the two. Stand hunting is exactly what it sounds like. And it's the number one way people hunt deer, honestly. And there's a good reason I'll talk about in a second. But stand hunting is you do your scouting You determine your patterns. You've determined something like we have a buck hitting rubs and scrapes here, uh, or you have a feeding area here and a bedding area here, and the deer travel between the two every night, so you place yourself between them, or whatever it is. You have an intersection of multiple deer runs, like a highway system going on. There's just high deer activity. Uh, there's a thicket that deer hide in, and you know that hunters will be coming in and applying pressure, so you place yourself there. Uh, you know that hunters are going to conduct what's called drives in a certain area. You know an avenue that's generally not hunted, that's really thick, that deer are generally escaped through when that drive happens. So you assume that other hunters are going to behave that way, and you set up an ambush there. Or you set up in your little greenhouse with your heater and your earbuds, and you listen to the survival podcast and wait for the corn feeder to go off for the deer to come. All of those are forms of stand hunting. The last one I'm not real keen on. But, I, again, I'm not putting anybody down. I get it. I've done it myself. I just don't lie to myself about the difference when I do it. Okay? But those are all stand hunting. And stand hunting, the reason it's so popular, especially for deer hunters and especially archery hunters, is when you're out spotting and stalking, you're relying on having long visibility. And whitetails aren't keen on standing around where they're highly visible over long distances if they have a choice. So they're already a poor choice for that type of... They're a woodland creature. They're an edge creature. They will go into fields and stuff, but they like to stay close to edge. 
So right there, you don't have the behavior that planes game have, right? Where you can get those long viewpoints, and they don't generally live up above timber lines like like mountain goats and 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 sheep do, where you get up above the timber line. So as long as you can find a, a, a one place to look to another ridge, you can glass for half a mile. They don't behave that way. So that's part of it. But the bigger part of it is since they're in this thicket environment they're in this edge environment they're in a place where you couldn't you, they go through stuff that you could not penetrate i mean it's just briars and brambles and nettles and thick and scrub and you would fight through there and it'd take you half an hour to go 100 yards you'd come out head to toe covered in scrapes and that deer will slip through there like like a ghost and that's the best way i can describe especially a wily whitetail they are like a ghost in the woods You will just, it will amaze you, especially if you start stand hunting and archery hunting, how that deer will ghost through something and you'll just, where did that animal go? Or when they ghost out of something, where did it come from? It catch you off guard. So that animal can move where you can't. It can hear better than you. And it can't see as well as you in some ways, but it can see better than you in others. And the big one is movement. A deer can spot movement that you would not see. Now, color, science tells us they're colorblind. I'm not 100% convinced of that, but it, it's, it's possible. Um, depth perception, they're actually not very good at. They're, they're really not. And if you've ever been kind of caught by one and you're in full camo, head net, and all up in a tree, if you looked up and saw that thing, you'd know it's a human. They don't know. They're, they start doing the head bob where they're pretending to eat and they lift their head up and they pretend to eat and they lift their head up and they start stomping their foot because they can't quite make out what that is. But move, buddy, and they see it. And make eye contact and it's over. They're gone. So they have this ability to hear better than you, period. To, to see movement better than you, period. And to smell better than your best friend, the dog. So when you're moving through a wooded environment... To them, you're walking around reeking of stink, banging a pot, and waving a flag over your head at the same time. That's what it's like to them. You are very easy to detect. And if you're walking up on deer and woods, those are deer that are not pressured, that are not really afraid of you, even if they're still not fully acclimated. If you're able to just kind of walk through the woods lollygagging and see deer, that deer doesn't feel pressure. And that same deer will change as you approach hunting season and the activity and the way humans interact with it change. Don't ask me how they know, but they know. And anybody that's ever been a hunter, even when you scout land that you actually hunt on and you see deer that you can approach much easier in the, in the summer, when you go back in the fall, it ain't that way. So by going into an ambush stand model, you're able to not make noise. You're able to minimize movement. And even though you still smell, and no matter how many charcoal suits you wear and how much anti-stink you spray on yourself and how much cover scent you put on your body, you still smell. But you minimize your dispersal, and you also know if the wind's blowing a certain way that you're putting very low to no scent trail that direction. So now you, you flip the advantage around, and the only disadvantage you have is will the deer choose that path? Did you do something to disrupt it, or were you just wrong about it? But that's stand hunting. All three of those can be applied to squirrels, but still hunting and stand hunting are your two best. All three can be applied to whitetails, 
still hunting and stand hunting are going to be your best in most areas. There's some areas out west where whitetails are in more open country and are a little bit more overlapping with mule deer territory, and you might do some good spot and stock. My spot and stock is limited because I don't hunt those areas very often. So that, that tells you, even with elk hunting, you know, you're talking dark timber. Um, so I don't have anything negative about spot and stock. I'm just telling you, unless you're in the area that's conducive to it, like my intern Joe from Montana, they spot and stock all the time. They're in mountains. They're in big timber, not low underbrush. You can see for long distances. You get out, you look, you glass, you find an animal, and you make an approach. It makes perfect sense, but this is very regional and situational and game-specific as well. So those are some of my thoughts there. Now, there will be people in Missouri that live in farm country that can spot and stalk whitetails all day long. But you move over to a different part of the state where you're mowing the Ozarks, and it ain't going to happen. So, again, there's no hard rules here. It's just an understanding of what you want to teach yourself and what the environment you're in uh, makes available to you. I want to talk now, though, about the whole concept of going out and doing all this without a gun and why it'll actually help you become a good hunter. Because a lot of people would say, I'm just taking a walk in the woods. Well, you're not. The first thing is it gives you a faster experience growth curve. I talked about it kind of breaking it down to gamer language, to experience points last week. You know, If you go out and you hunt deer and you can only hunt weekends and you live in a state where the season is three weeks long, uh, you've got six days of, of hunting. So you've got six experience points. But if you went out in the woods two days a week, um, whether it was where you were actually going to hunt or not, every week of the year, for a full year, you'd have 100 experience points. And that's about as cut and dry as I can make it. By getting out there and seeing and observing and interacting and understanding and, and, and tuning your senses, including scent. I said you won't smell squirrels, but you can smell deer. You can smell elk. You can def especially during the, the rut, when elk are in rut, you can smell elk. And, and a lot of people won't. You can smell deer and in the rut more, but you can smell deer sometimes even just when they're doing their day-to-day -day thing. There's a certain musty character. It's not a bad odor, but it's, it's different. You even learn that. Sight, sound, and pattern. So all of these things, now you're on a growth curve that's much faster than if you restrict yourself just to, when can I shoot them? Which is what most people do. For those of you that live in places where you can hunt, you do have access to public land uh, or other types of land that we'll talk about here at the end. Um, your season should be starting now. The, the people that put the most time in into preseason scouting are the most successful hunters I know. Um, they're out there all the time. They end up patterning animals. They actually end up knowing certain animals. Like that deer lives here. They give them names. Right, and usually you end up finding like the one that you really want, and that's the one you never get. It's it's interesting, but it's the preseason scouting that makes the hunter, and it does increase the growth curve because you can only spend so much time actually hunting. You also have like kind of time limitations with hunting, like you you know morning and evening are your best times and all. Where if you happen to have three hours to take a walk today. You can go out in a place, instead of walking in the city park, find a place that's a little bit more wild 
and you can hone your skills a little bit. So it has that going on to for you. It also it, the big you know tie in from that is it focuses on what you can do now. Because people go, one day I'll get a gun, and one day I'll find a place to hunt. Well, you can always go do this. So it focuses on the immediately actionable items that you have. There's there's nothing I've told anybody to do today, except for those of you maybe that live in the middle of Manhattan and can't get out of there, where you can't find a way to do this once or twice a week right away. If this is something you want to learn. Now, not everybody wants to learn this, but everybody can. The big thing, it'll also teach you game behavior. You'll understand the way the animal behaves, how the animal reacts. If you go out and stand hunt with a camera, you'll experience the deer busting you. And you don't understand that until it happens. I can tell you what happens, but you won't get it. And you won't get how that animal's looking at you, trying to figure out what you are, stomping the ground, pretending to eat, and they're, they're hilarious. And you, and you won't get, especially if you're going to bow hunt, How hard it is not to laugh when they're when they're gaming you like that, and when you go, that's it, it's gone. He's gotten what he wanted out of you. Figured out it's not cool, it's not safe, right? But they'll go down and they look like they're eating, but their 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 mouth is six inches above the ground, and they're just bobbing their head around like they're eating, feigning that they're vulnerable, but their eyes are up and their ears are totally turned in on you, and they're waiting for you to move, and then all of a sudden they lift their head up, and they put it back down and they lift it up again. And if that doesn't work, they take that front foot and they'll start stomping. And again, it's funny. You gotta learn to control the humor response. That's not what they're going for. They're going for any response. And you won't understand what it's like until you experience it, but that's going on and you lock eyes with the animal. You don't move. You just let the eyes connect, even through a head net. The second it happens, they know when they're gone. It's a game behavior. You won't understand it until you experience it. And you can do that. And if you've experienced it, and you end up in one of those scenarios on stand, you're going to be far more likely to be able to, to work your way through it if you have the experience. And this is why I don't like, I picked on the box blinds and the deer feeders a lot, but this is why I don't like those. None of that will ever happen. Some of you guys have hunted for 20 years. You shoot deer every year. You shoot it from a, with a rifle at a hundred yards, paced off underneath a, a feeder. I'm not picking on you, but you have no idea what I'm talking about. If that's the only way you've ever hunted, you've never experienced it. You've never actually tuned in to the animal's responses. The hairs on your arm didn't go up at the same time the hair on the animal's back went up. Your arm hairs might have went up because you were excited, but you weren't feeling a simultaneous experience with the animal. You've never sat there and thought, my heart's pounding, and not from the standpoint of I need to settle down so I can make this shot, from the standpoint of, oh my God, I bet he can hear it. This will give you that. Try it. And you learn from your mistakes when they don't matter. When that deer does the head bob and prances around or snorts at you or whatever, and you laugh, or, you, or occasionally even just to be funny, do you know what's hilarious? When a deer does that, and they do their head down, and they, they put their head up, and they look at you, and you go, boo! Scares the crap out of them. I had one almost flip over one time. I had a quick story for you guys. This is not a uh, simulated hunting thing. This was I was out fishing at a stream in Pennsylvania when I was in my teens. And uh, I'm fishing, and uh, I hear sounds in the leaves. And you know the sound. It's, it's deer approaching. 
So I want to see the deer that are coming. So I kind of pull my rod in, and I get down behind this little blowdown, and I'm listening, and I hear deer, and I realize there's deer. It's not like a deer. It's like a whole bunch of deer, probably a good dozen or more moving through. And they're on both sides of the stream, on my side and on the other side, but I'm not seeing any on my side. I'm not seeing any on the other side. And then all of a sudden I see like an ear, and they're coming through, and they're really at ease. They don't realize I'm there. The water's covered up my sound, and I'm, there's almost no wind, and, and they're just not getting it that I'm there. And they're going about their business, and it's a doe and two little does and another doe that doesn't have any little does yet. And I'm watching them, and this is cool. And all of a sudden I get that feeling and the hairs go up on the back of my neck and my arm hairs are up and I know something's up and I turn and I look over my left shoulder and there was another doe because of the way I was hunched down and not moving she couldn't tell what I was she was only about five feet away from me looking at me intently trying to figure out what I was and when I turned and looked at her she snorted where they go like that When she did that, she was so close, she actually blew deer snot in my face. She went back up in the air like a horse on its hind legs and fell on her back, flipped over and ran off. And I, I was there disgusted by deer snot and laughing so hard my stomach hurt at the same time. Of course, all the other deer took off. But that happened when I was 15 years old, and I'm telling you that story, and it's like I was there. These are the experiences you can get from real hunting. And it's why I challenge even those of you who will continue to take deer under a feeder because, hey, I want to eat. There's the deer, and this is how it's done in my state, to try some of these things, to learn these experiences because, you know, part of the primitive thing is you're not always going to have a deer feeder, you know, if you're ending up really depending on game for, for, for caloric substance. Um, and it's different, and that's all I can say. A little bit here about finding actual ag. So you've done all this stuff and you want to hunt. Where can you where can you get access to land? Public hunting is the best option if it's available and if there are good options in your area. Some places have just an amazing amount of public land for hunting. Joe tells me his areas in Montana, you know, there's just national forest and just tons of places to hunt. Pennsylvania actually had a lot of public land, but it, It had the other problem that with public land, a lot of deer hunters. They say that on the first day of deer season in Pennsylvania, there's a million deer hunters. A million people with rifles represents one of the largest armies in the world. Um, so even with a lot of space, there's a lot of hunters. So it's all, it's all kind of hit and miss. And some areas there's less game and it's more remote and it's public, but because of that, you actually have a higher success rate. Uh, because there's less hunters, less people go there. So you have more, t if you have the time and other people don't to put in, in those areas, you can do quite well. There's some tricks too. Let me tell you one of my tricks when I was in my teens and, 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 and had the ability to maybe take two days off of school. And once I got a vehicle and go with a buddy upstate and, uh, and hunt, what we would do is we would look at the total deer harvest numbers from our state game department, which is actually reported, I think in almost every state. Uh, it's not really all the numbers, but it's all the reported numbers. Not everybody reports all their, their kills, but they get a pretty good idea. We find the county with the highest number of deer taken. Um, and then we'd look for out of maybe those top four or five counties with the highest number of deer, which one had the lowest number taken by archery. 
And what those were were very high-density deer populations, with very low numbers of people that went in the early season to go archery hunting. And then we would find a place we could stay near public land, and we'd go there and hunt. And we had pretty good success with that approach because we were pretty much alone surrounded by deer at a time when the deer didn't feel a lot of pressure yet. So there's always ways to, to you know angle that. So public hunting is one, one option, and you can usually go to your state game department website and find state game lands and any other lands that are open to the general public for hunting. Some states have programs with private landowners where the private landowner says, yes, people can hunt here, period. The problem with it, in my experience, has been they don't tell you where they are. You have to find them yourself through dumb luck and asking around. So Pennsylvania, for instance, has several million acres like this where you know a guy owns uh, a thousand-acre farm. And he thinks, you know what, these deer are eating my corn. Of course I let people hunt here. I don't care as long as they are respectful of my land. So he'll contact the game department and say, yeah, put me on the list. And they'll give him some signs he can put up that basically say, this is private land but open to public hunting. And that means you see that sign, you can hunt there. But you can't go to like a central database and find all these locations like that. They don't provide that to you. So that's another type of public hunting that you might find. Another option, which is a great option for new hunters and people with limited time, is guided hunting. And guides have done all the work we talked about today. And if you are in tune with the skills that we talked about today, you'll have a great experience with a guide. And guided hunting allows you to do things that you normally wouldn't be able to do, like go 10 states over and hunt with success. Because you don't have time to scout that area, learn that game pattern, etc. And you probably only have so much time to go there. So the guide kind of can help you along. And it's a great way to experience success as a new hunter. And frankly, if I'm going to go hunt in a place I'm totally unfamiliar with, in game I'm not very familiar with, I would always go the guided hunting route. Even if I'm going to, like, say, oh, I'm going to start hunting this place all the time. Let's say you had never hunted pronghorn antelope before. And there's tons of antelope in Wyoming and Montana. And there's plenty of public land to hunt Wyoming antelope and Montana antelope. And you can kind of get a really good idea just by looking where they are. But if you went once and hunted with a guide, especially a guide that hunts public land there, then you could probably go every year and be relatively successful because it's a high percentage success rate game animal because you can see them and they're not that smart and there's lots of them and there's not that many hunters. And I know people in Wyoming are like, God, we got a lot of antelope hunters, dude. And I'm like, yeah. We have a million deer hunters in Pennsylvania. We have probably close to that number of deer hunters in Texas. It's just a bigger state and a lot less public land and a lot more private uh, hunting where you have to pay to hunt. But that's what I say not that many. I'm talking about versus a million. You know, not versus a couple thousand or 10,000 or even 50,000. 50,000 is a lot less than a million. About a lot of you guys are 50,000 errors and very few of you are millionaires. To kind of drive that point home. Uh, the next is leased hunting access or paid hunting access. This is the typical deer lease situation where you have a block of land. The landowner says it costs X amount of year to reserve this land. A lot of times they'll say, well, we are going to charge $6,000 for access to our property during deer season. That's it. It's up to you to run it as long as you don't do anything stupid. Uh, you can. It's yours. You're, you're buying the whole thing or you don't get it at all. Some places will say, well, we do it for $1,500 a gun, and we do it up to eight guns, and you could be one gun, basically. And when they say guns, they mean, usually it would work like this. Let's say you want to take your kid with you, but he's not going to hunt, 
there's no problem. That's what they mean when they say guns. But if he's going to shoot too, he counts as a gun he has to pay, and he counts off the total number of guns they allow on the property. And the reason they do that is they only want, you know, they're, they're leasing the land for deer. They don't want it overhunted, so they're controlling how many people take deer. They're controlling their population. Bigger ranches in places like Texas almost always do this in conjunction with a, with a, a game department manager who will come out, a conservation officer, and tell them, you need to have this many deer harvested this year, you need to up your doe harvest, um, you need to do, you know, whatever you need to do to improve your deer herd. And some of them get very, very scientific to the point they're almost ranching the deer. Uh, and some of them are a lot more loose with the way that they do this. But it's a great option because you know you're only going to have so many hunters. Uh, if you're in Texas, a lot of times you're stuck. This is another reason I give Texas hunters somewhat of a pass on this type of stand hunting. Uh, a, a guy will say, okay, well, I have a 10,000-acre ranch. I'm going to lease out uh, hunting uh, to, to hunters. And he'll say, well, I got the, he, he, this is the piece you're leasing. It's this area. There's a couple blinds in it. You can use any of them. Uh, some will say we provide feeders. Some will say you provide your own feeders or you do what you want. But basically, it, the, the lease will come with an agreement that this is how you'll access the area. This is how you'll leave the area. If you're going to stay on site, this is your camping area. And I don't want you walking around interfering with other hunters that are paying to be here too. So what, what what ends up happening is the person ends up, if you're going to be a lease hunter in some of these areas, you're going to hunt that way. You're just going to hunt that way because you're stuck with it. Because the landowner won't allow you to do anything any differently. Where if you own your own 10,000-acre ranch in Texas, Texas is a great state for spot and stock deer. Especially if you're in West Texas where you got openings and arroyos and things like that. You can get out, drive around, glass, and, and, and make stalks on animals including some exotic game animals, even on some land that you know wasn't stocked because they've escaped. So it's, it's kind of variable there. The best option to me has always been, in my experience, though I found it very difficult to find in Texas, private land with permission. Because that means you're getting the qualities of lease, but generally without the restrictions of, of you can only have one person, you can only be here, you have to exit this way. Most private ownership, when you say, can I hunt your property, and they say, okay, they might say things like, okay, this is where my house is. I don't want you X distance from the house, so stay at least over here and don't shoot in this direction. Uh, clean up your garbage in Godspeed, right, and obey the law. Uh, that's pretty much it. It's, it's usually a lot less stringent. And you're probably going to have a lot less hunters to contend with. Those so some some people are very very open to hunters, and they let anybody that asks. And some will let anybody that asks first. I've had hunters like I had a guy we used to go hunt down in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, for dove. And um, he it was a great place to hunt dove because he would harvest his field and sow his winter wheat right before the first of September when dove season started. And we went down, we saw dove everywhere, like in, in August, and we went and asked him, and he was a Dutchie, and he said, oh yeah, no, no problem, you can hunt, don't, don't shoot the barn, don't shoot the pigeons, and that's good. Oh, okay, I think I got you. So, we, we started hunting, and we'd been there, uh, our second year, we came back and said, could, could we hunt again this year? He goes, oh, of course, you guys are great. He goes, I just had some guys last week, they came in, they asked to hunt, I told them I already have hunters. So, he was very open to letting us hunt, But he only wanted one group of hunters. So that was per, I mean, we had for about four years there till I left for the army, my uncle and I, we had like a, 
it was like a dream dove lease for free. All we had to do was drive there, and we would bring the guy stuff and once in a while. And one time we cleaned up, you know, half a dozen doves and gave them to him. And he was a really nice guy. And that's an ideal situation if you can find that. But it's you know, especially as finances become tighter, it's becoming harder and harder to find. And, and I would encourage you too, if you do have someone that you're leasing land from, you know, and and you are, you know you know, paying for the land and what have you, to to treat that a lot more like you might treat, let's say, land that you had from a uh, a person that was just letting you hunt there, uh, like I'm talking about with uh, our Dutch farmer buddy, where, you know, we were in a situation where we were very grateful, uh, we would bring him stuff and things like that, because it's getting more and more competitive, that even though you're thinking, well, I'm paying for this, Man, I mean, people are getting into a situation where, you know, they could get more money, but they like you, so they don't ask for more money. Um, so that's, that's, that's something to consider as well. So what I'm saying, those of you that have had that piece of land that your family's been leasing for a long time from the same family, you've got good relations with that family, send them Christmas cards and stuff, because there's probably somebody that would offer them, especially if they've only raised your rates, here and there, offer them more money to get in, and it's the relationship and the long-term agreement that's keeping what you have yours. Because most of the time, it's not a contract. It's on a handshake and word of mouth. So those of you that have great access to land at reasonable rates, guard that uh, you know a little bit jealously and appreciate the landowner for working with you and, and, and continuing to do that with you. Because uh, it's a tough thing. I know that if I owned you know, a 1,000 acres... I don't know that I'd want to go into the game leasing business. I'd really want to be like, this is special. If I got to that level to be able to afford something that magnificent and would want to keep it for myself and my friends. So it's, it, it's, it's actually something quite valuable and even in compared to what seems like a high cost. So that's something I would advise you to consider if you're already there. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, this show and the show that preceded it, and it's opened you to some new ideas and concepts about hunting in general and ways that you can teach yourself to hunt. And somebody asked if I would maybe do some follow-up to this show like I did with the, the Food Forest series where I said, send me your questions, and I would answer them. Um, I'll do that. I don't know that we'll have four Q&A shows out of it, but if we get enough questions, um, maybe I can do you know one Q&A show or a segment on it. So if you want to submit a question specifically for follow-up on this show or the show that preceded it, not how do I hunt the one-eyed, one horned pot, uh, flying purple people eater in Tasmania, but stuff that's really related to these two shows, send me a, a email to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and, and put in the uh, subject line, hunting question for Jack, and I'll put it aside. And if I can get enough questions, I'll do some sort of follow-up on that. In any event, I uh, hope you enjoy it. And again, guys, check out my video and article today on brinkoffreedom.net. Um, I think it'll blow you away. Please share it with other people. Uh, if you just want to share the video, I understand. But if you could share it by sharing the link over at Joe's site, that'll really help him. I mean, he's worked really hard. He's, he's made that site pretty amazing in about five months. And uh, I really want to help him build as much traction with that as well. Um, last week we ran a competition over there uh, for people that won 
uh, some free memberships. I don't know if those people want their names mentioned. I'll be getting in touch with you today if you won the MSB memberships from the register at Brink of Freedom for his updates list and setting up your membership or asking you if you want to donate it if you already have one. And if those folks say it's okay, I'll uh, go ahead and uh, release the winners and what they want. Otherwise, I want to say uh, thanks for joining me today. Get out in the woods and teach yourself some of the skills we've lost, whether that be hunting, trapping, fishing, bushcrafting, you name it, and teach yourself and your family the skills that they need to survive and thrive in a shifting and changing environment. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.